tonight on Arena. If These Walls Could Sing, Miriam McCartney's documentary on the famous Abbey Road Studios, and we preview the final season of Sally Wainwright's Happy Valley. Double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. Music fans from around the world regularly make the pilgrimage to Abbey Road Studios to have their photos taken on the zebra crossing made famous by the Beatles. The new documentary called If These Walls Could Sing sees Paul McCartney's daughter, Mary, guide us through nine decades to see the, and experience the creative magic that makes this building one of the most famous and longest running studios in the world from classical to pop film scores to hip hop it they feed the documentary explores the breadth the diversity and the ingenuity of Abbey Road Studios interviews with Elton John, Roger Waters, Nolan Liam Gallagher, John Williams and of course Paul McCartney himself are paired with vivid archive footage and session tapes giving exclusive access to these famously private studios. Joined this evening by Paul McLoon who has been watching If These Walls Could Sing. If Those Walls Could Sing, it would be a very long song with lots and lots of verses in it, Paul. Very long, yes. What a storied place. And uh, it's interesting because it, it does go back so long. The 1931, in mm. fact, Edward Elgar with Pomp and Circumstance, which I think is Land and Hope and Glory. Isn't that the it same is. song? Yeah, yeah, it is. That's um, Land and Hope and, and Glory, yeah. That was kind of the inaugural thing there with the, the, the London Symphony Orchestra. And that's 1931. So it's a, it's a long, long time. Of course, it was, a, it was there before then. They bought it as a, as a dwelling. Um, and converted it. And when uh, we say they, we're talking the about... The gramophone company. Yeah. There's, a, there's a wonderfully sort of... Uh, I don't know if it's it's real movie tone kind of archive stuff or they sort of, you know, um, they, they sort of recorded it as, as a bit of a spoof, but it's it's great. Yeah. Uh, it kicks off there. In 1931, the gramophone I, company, yeah. it's, it's probably, It sounded real to it me. It sounded very real to me as well. <laughs> and and it does... And that, that those beginnings of Abbey Road are kind of vital to the story that Mary McCartney goes on goes on to tell, because it was essentially a classical music, yeah. music studio to start out with, with this huge studio space that a big orchestra could fit into. Yeah, that's Studio One, and um, it's still, uh, as far as I, mm-hmm. I'm aware, still used for that, uh, certainly as recently as, as John Williams' work on, the, on, on his film scores. And he talks actually very eloquently about what makes it such a special room from, from a... Like a lot of musicians, and it's forgivable because musicians, as we know, are kind of slightly fanciful, sort of superstitious people. And, and you know, they talk about Elton John is the first uh, to say, oh, there's something almost seeping from the walls in the place. I think it's truer to say that musicians and artists bring that mm. with them into a place. You bring that sort of psychological luggage into a place like Abbey Road and it informs how you how you work and it, it inspires and it kind of, you know, gives you a, a certain sort of vibe to work off. I don't think there'd be an artist or a singer, certainly, who wouldn't be somehow inspired once you got over the sheer awe of it by, you know, standing yeah. in, the, in the same spot where, where Lennon sang A Day in the Life, for instance, and not feel something and not be moved. And that's, you won't get that in another yeah. place. Although if I, were, if I were to mix science with total jiggery-pokery, I would say that, you know, if you think of the music that has been played in that room, yes, it is, in inverted commas, still resonating around that room. And it is in the walls. And anybody who's go- who goes in there 
might have a sense of that. Oh, well, absolutely. And as I say, it, it, whether it's, as John Williams said, he's a bit more technical. Well, he's sort of halfway between the two. He he, he just says it's, a, it's, a, it's intimate, but big enough to kind of accommodate an yeah. orchestra and the reverberations of the room are just special and beautiful to him. Um, and that's, um, um, I, I think, a much more sort of grounded way of looking at it. Or McCartney himself, of course, he's extensively yeah. interviewed in this. He just points out that it's actually a really good studio. Everything works. <laughs> Let's listen to him, really actually. Yeah. Let's listen to what he has to say yeah. about it. Because it's kind of such, it's very Liverpool. It's absolutely and totally yeah. down to earth. And remember, it's his daughter that is uh, that is uh, leading us through and directing this particular uh, documentary. So she had full access to Macca. In London, we had used other studios besides Abbey Road. But we always liked this the best. So that when I was looking to record with Wings, I thought, well, this is the best studio. I know it. I know a lot of the people here. And a lot of them were still here. A lot of them still are. <laughs> well, I just can't get enough of that sweet stuff my little lady gets behind. It's just a great studio. You know, all the microphones work. I mean, that sounds silly to say, but you can go to some studios where they don't. So it was great. It was great to come back home. And that's Paul McCartney in the scene from If These Walls Could Sing, new documentary on the Abbey Road Studios, made by Mary McCartney, Paul McCartney's daughter. And when I saw them going straight to the wing stuff, uh, as they do, that's quite early on in the documentary yeah, that we get up, that, Paul. Straight up the bat, more I, or less, yeah. I think it's more or less the first thing he tells us about. You think, oh, are we going to get anything about the Beatles here? But then she, backs, she backtracks and we do go right yes. back to the very beginnings and make our way into the Beatles. The Beatles kind of overpower this. Yeah, I mean, there's a challenge, I think, as a documentarian approaching a subject like Abbey Road because you can't necessarily gloss over the Beatles because mm. they're so synonymous with it and all that music they made for that decade in that famous studio. Um, but at the same time, you know, you're, 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 you're going to end up weighing the documentary down with what is, after all, only one aspect of the lifespan of a building, a 90-year lifespan. Um, and for the most part, I think, the, the line has walked quite well there. You know, we get to hear from 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 other artists. Elton John is great in a talking yeah. about his days there as a, as a session man, for instance. The Gallagher brothers are both, you know, good value as always. Sadly, not in the, in the, in the, in the studio at the same time, but, not. you know, maybe one day. Um, but they're great, you know, with their sort of reminiscences, obviously much, much more recent than, mm. than the work of the Beatles. But what do you do? Do you, do you sort of play down the Beatles, in which case, you know, that would be a bit ridiculous? And then at the same time, this, the story of the Beatles, which is so intertwined with the story of Abbey Road, is also so familiar yeah. that, you know, and one thing that I was slightly, not disappointed, but I would have maybe approached slightly differently is we've got McCartney, we've got Ringo, you've got both of them. You're Mary McCartney, you've un, absolutely unparalleled access to these guys. Um, maybe have them walk around the building, you know, maybe have them go around it together if that was possible, yeah. if, if schedules permitted. Maybe they didn't. But, you know, you to have them reminisce with each other about, oh, there's the canteen. And wait, you remember the crack we had in there yeah. and just kind of give us Let a flavour of, of yeah. what it was like to be a Beatle. Although we do, see, we do see McCartney at one stage playing Lady Madonna on the piano. That Which is always, <laughs> let's face it, a joy. Yeah, and it is the original piano. Or Absolutely. M- Mrs Mills piano. Yeah, an old gr- upright thing in the yeah, corner, yeah. And, and, and honky-tonk sound of it exactly Amazing. exactly what they wanted. However, um, George Martin is a big part of the story Huge. of Abbey Road. Huge. I mean, I think even without the Beatles, his history with that studio, 
of course, the studio wouldn't be as iconic and famous as mm. it is now if it weren't for the Beatles and his work with them. But even without that, even if it were a, a less uh, storied and celebrated place, he would be synonymous with it, I think, because his history goes back much further than 1962 when the Beatles first walked up those stairs. Um, his his story goes back, to, I think, as far back as around 1950. Uh, so you're very much in the post-war era and he's a very fresh face. He tells the story himself, a very fresh face. Sort yeah, of we hear him in, in archive recordings, yeah. obviously, but we hear his son there as well. And Jez is great, sort of filling in the, in the blanks on it as well and giving his, his perspective. But Martin produced a lot of stuff, not just music. I mean, he did all sorts of stuff light jazz with Johnny Dankworth and all sorts of, of, of light classical stuff, uh, pop records of the pre-Beatles era, the pre-rock and roll era, in fact. Um, he was responsible for so much of that. And also, I think very importantly, which isn't mentioned at all in this, uh, a lot of very influential comedy recordings with the likes of Peter Sellers, uh, Bernard Cribbins, those great novelty records with Bernard Cribbins, and a duo called Flanders and Swan, who are maybe semi-forgotten now, but yeah. were very influential, along yeah. with the Goons, along with Spike Milligan very and Sellers and those guys, very much influential on the wave of comedy that would come along the Pythons and, and Pete and Dodd and all that stuff. So it's interesting and curious that that isn't uh, touched on because it's it's a big, big part of the story of the studio as well. Yeah, let's have a listen to a clip that does feature the late George Martin, uh, obviously in, in a recording here, talking about the Beatles' uh, number one, first number one single, and Paul McCartney obviously part of this as well. Once they had a success with Please Please Me, they seemed to blossom as songwriters, from Me To You Followed and She Loves You and so on. And each one was a great song. And I realised very early on that we needed an album pretty damn quick. It was in February of 63 that we, we made the album, and we did it in one day. One day. <laughs> it's incredible. And actually, it, it, on my birthday, before I was born, I hasten to add, but on my, the 11th of February, um, they did that one big session that resulted in Please Please Me, culminates it with uh, Twist and Shout, which Lennon just... Well, actually, I, I was going to say he just about had it in the tank. Yeah. He clearly didn't have it in the tank, but it's what makes the vocals so great. It's so ragged and so desperate almost just to get it done, get it out, that you can hear the Beatles at the end give themselves a round of applause, you know. And, <laughs> and you know, Martin really just had to record them, but... Please Please Me is a case in point, though. Even at that early stage where it was just very much put the four guys in the room and record them, he suggested speeding that song up. Originally, it was written as a Roy Orbison-style yeah. ballad. And George says, well, why don't you play it a bit faster? Yeah. And the Beatles weren't having that, but they did it anyway because he was in charge. I mean, yeah. it was very much master and pupil relationship at that point. And of course, he was bang on the money. Speeding it up resulted in their first proper big hit. They'd had Love Me yeah. Too. It didn't do a lot of business. Please, please me. It was a big, big yeah, hit, number one hit. Start. So, you know, yeah. it, it just goes to show the genius of George Martin, even in that, that, that one decision. But the other thing of the George Martin side of things, it brings, and I know possibly I have a little bias in this, <laughs> I would have to admit, but it brings it back to these classical roots. I'm a Hartney himself talks about this. It Absolutely. was the fact that all around this studio were session musicians who were in probably playing on a classical music gig as much as they were playing on pop music gigs as well. You had orchestras in and around the place. So the idea that there were there were barriers between styles of music was kind of, it just wasn't there at the time. I think that's a really, really good point. And not even just access to the various additional musicians, uh, classical musicians who did hmm. play on quite early Beatles tunes, as early as yesterday, there's a little, you know, string section. I don't know if that would have been as readily thought of, perhaps, if yeah. they hadn't been in Abbey Road. And also just the array of bizarre instruments. There was literally a cupboard under the stairs that was just full of all kinds of things. That and Sergeant Pepper's Absolutely, as, uh, as they the progressed in the 60s, 
Beatles, the Beatles kind of methodology changed and they became more about kind of just looking at a thing going, well, what's that thing? Let's let's, <laughs> let's try it on this. Yeah. And, you know, and just from that, you know, I often think that just coming from a position of relative ignorance about 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 music and about the technology of music and instrumentation using it in the wrong way almost you can yeah. actually innovate brilliantly and, and, but also in the in the famous i read the news today so yeah, that you know where they talk about uh the the orchestra day in the life yeah a day in the life and, and mccartney talks about actually saying to the orchestra well you start very low and yes. you all just raise the notes higher and higher and higher and you get louder and louder and louder and they were kind of looking going, <laughs> what do you want us to do but, you know, that's what the likes of John Cage and the likes of Steve Reich and these guys were kind of saying 10, 15 years later who, who to McCartney, McCartney would have been very familiar with yeah. a lot of that sort of avant-garde approach to music, much more than Lennon at the yeah. time. And But he still needed George Martin to kind of talk to the... The orchestra yeah, and, and explain tr- translate yeah. into terms <laughs> into they can understand. Talk. Look, yeah. I, it's a genius idea, but they haven't a clue how to do it. So yeah. here's how we get them to do it. And the other thing we see is wonderful footage of Jacqueline Dupre playing the oh, Elgar cello it, concerto, and just you know she she's been di- oh, this is she's diagnosed early in her life. Yes, with, with MS. Very very sad. It's but really touching archive footage. That it's actually uh, spine tingling. It, it moved me much more than any of the other clips of the Beatles and or, or anybody yeah. else who's there. And of course, it's not just the Beatles; it's Pink Floyd and all sorts of people. But um, there's, the, the, I would recommend watching this documentary just to see that footage of Jacqueline Dupre um, play that. It's it's absolutely spine tingling the intensity yeah. of it and her, the way she's just lost in in the moment of the music. It's quite quite remarkable to see. Yeah, and again, it t- takes us back to a point when that Elgar concerto was actually hugely popular. Yes. And people bought it in the same way, not quite as they bought Beatles records, but they bought it quite regularly the man in the street was buying that record however it does move on to other big events and <laughs> I just love the story Jimmy Page was a session musician oh, this is great, started, yeah. off, started off as a session musician in there and he talks about uh, and we hear from Shirley Bassey as well talking about the recording of a famous Bond theme in Abbey Road Studio so you'll hear Shirley Bassey and you'll hear Jimmy Page in this clip And they had this enormous screen, and I had to sing Goldfinger to what was happening on the credits, you know. I wasn't that far away from where she was going, more or less in the front line of it, and all the orchestra, orchestra stuff is behind now then. 15, take 15. Right at the end of the take, she had a really powerful voice. I can hear her doing this sort of last note. But till we got to the end, and the, and the credits didn't seem to end, and I had to hold this note. And it was like, forever. He loves And then she collapses on the floor. It was absolutely so dramatic. And of course, when she sings, she's doing all the histrionics and things. It was something that you'd never, never forget. 
Jimmy Page in a clip there from the documentary If These Walls Could Sing Paul McLuhan has been uh, looking at it for us and he's with me in the studio this evening it's just one of several brilliant uh, stories that are told uh, Fantastic and in the front line I mean, in the front, in the front line, line of Shirley right, Bassey's voice you know what I mean um, and uh, yeah it's, it's it's a great perspective on, on a pre-fame Jimmy Page who's shown in an archive interview being a bit sniffy about pop musicians and you know he's mm. kind of a bit he's asked oh what's it like working with all these famous musicians go, no they're not very good really yeah, I mean, I even, at, even when he was in his teens he he knew he was brilliant but it's 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 a great moment and he looks ridiculously well by the way yeah he does he looks very well I'm um, actually my, my old maths teacher is on to me uh, you should mention the July 1932 menu Abbey Road recording of the Elgar says John Cosgrave who did in fact lecture me in maths once upon a very time good. yeah and, very yeah, important as we know yeah absolutely and they're related to music but the, the menu and the, the Jacqueline Dupre stuff and later on we see um Shano Cane Mason a contemporary cellist Talk. He sees oh, Jacqueline Dupre's his, recording notes. His his uh, sort of um, meditation on Jacqueline oh, Dupre beautiful. is beautiful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. However, it did kind of fall into rough times, as did lots of places in the seventies, and they went selling everything. Yes, uh, which I didn't really know a lot about that. Mm. I knew they'd, they'd, they'd gone through a, a few lean years, but what I didn't know was they had this, as you say, this massive sell-off of the gear and the the kind of Deus Ex Machina there. Once, oh, it's Deus Ex Machina. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's McCartney, sorry about that. Um, and he kind of bought up a lot of the gear. So I don't know quite what the story is there because he says, yeah, you know, I bought the gear, you know, I bought a lot of the stuff. Um, but a lot of that stuff is back in there now yeah. because I've, I've been lucky enough to visit a couple of times and you can see all that old gear that they use. So I don't know if McCartney's lent it back to Abbey Road or sold it back yeah. to Abbey Road, but he certainly saved the day by buying up a lot of that equipment because it would have been a real shame for that to be sort of lost. And the other thing that saved the studios or certainly kept it alive at that point in the 70s was the arrival of film music and yes. big film scores. You mentioned John Williams earlier on and it's, it's one of the George Lucas ones he's talking about here, yeah, uh, where they, they decided they wanted to they wanted to do some recording, but they were saying, oh, we need, we need a big sound for this. So let's have a listen to what John Williams has to say about Abbey Road. When I first began to work on the score for Star Wars, it emerged more and more every day as I wrote more that this score needs a symphony orchestra. It can't just be a pickup band of some certain amount of players. And our music director at Fox Studios said to me, why don't you hire a symphony orchestra in London? And I said, well, great, let's do it. We'll try it with the London Symphony Orchestra, which we did. And that was thrilling for me. I said at the time, and I say it now, it was kind of like driving a Rolls. You know, you think, oh, whoopee, this is, wow, what a, what a sound, what perfection, what balance, you know, what sonority. That's John Williams talking about uh, talking about uh, his time uh, with in Abbey Road and all the Star Wars stuff was done there. They were back there with the recent reboots of the of the franchise. Yeah, they were recorded there, uh, and it brings us right up uh, to I suppose I'm saying contemporary times, but it brings us up to the Britpop era with the Gallaghers. Yeah, but as I say, both the Gallaghers are interviewed mm. sadly separately. separately still, but uh, yeah, and they tell a great story. Well, they've again, unsurprisingly, they've slightly different recollections of it. I think Noel, who's very mm. entertaining and very very funny well, let's, as let's, always. Let's listen oh, to the two of them. We okay. listen to the two of them. I think this is probably the particular story yeah. you're talking about. Uh, one from A bit from one, a bit from the other. You know, a, a huge, massive part of my record collection was made in this room. My musical language was born in this room. My hairstyle was born in this room. There was no bigger Beatles fans than us, than maybe the Beatles themselves. 
It must have been such a privilege to be in your 20s, in the 60s. You know, it starts with the Beatles, and then the Stones appear, and then the Who, and then the Kinks and all that. I mean, what a time to be alive, you know. That's drugs for you, isn't it? You know what I mean? Or maybe not, you know what I mean? Or, the, you know, whatever, the swinging, whatever it was, you know what I mean? It was like, it all went a bit, like, from the war period and all that to just, like, a bit of... You know, people will call it drugs, people will call it this and that, you know what I mean? People will call it the miniskirt, people will call it everything, but you can just see everyone just seem to go, let their hair down a little bit. Not difficult to work out which one's Noel Gallagher no. and which one's Liam Gallagher. In fact, they Not don't me. tell the story there, so you might finish by telling us that story. Well, they were asked to leave, unsurprisingly, like almost everywhere else Oasis went to in the 90s, they were asked to leave uh, Abbey Road. But it wasn't for the usual thing. I think Noel tries to make out it's because they were partying a little bit hard, but then Liam bursts his bubble by saying, no, what actually happened was we're such big Beatles fans, we couldn't believe we were in Abbey Road. We started playing all the Beatles albums back to back at ear-splitting volume and uh, they bust a speaker, basically. And, you know, you don't break stuff at Abbey Road. So they were allowed back in, though. So Avenged, happy ending. Um, does does it work overall? As I mean, there's so much to tell. Even to what we did now in the last twenty minutes, we're even telescoping the hour and a half documentary. Does does the documentary work overall? It absolutely does in its own uh, on its own terms mm. in in the time that's available. I I felt unusually for me, I felt it could have done with an extra half hour. Or yeah. So just touching on the bits and bobs that we were, we've just been talking about for the last few minutes, they're 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 kind of glossed over a little. The earlier history of the studio isn't really got into. I mean, it jumps straight from 1931 to Cliff Richard in 1958 doing movie. So there's <laughs> yeah. a whole chunk there that just doesn't get looked at at, at all, which I I just found was strange. You know, not even done as a timeline or. A, or a, or a montage it's just it's just ignored um, but apart from that I mean apart from those couple of little criticisms and the fact like I say that I, I feel that we've, we've seen talking heads of McCartney sitting in Abbey Road talking about making records we've seen that so much I, I just felt that it maybe a slightly more imaginative approach yeah, could have been taken there but there you go I, you know she, once a producer always a producer yeah, you, know I mean, I mean, you know Martin the, the piece we, we haven't touched on the Pink Floyd so I thought with Roger Waters brilliant the, all they, the surviving Floyd yeah, uh, guys are there and, and it's it's yeah. it's brilliant stuff if you're, if you're a fan of that music Music and that era, and you'd yep. like to know a little bit more about the place where it was made. It's it's a wonderful, ah, right. easy going documentary that does what it sets out to do. Could have done with a wee bit more for me. Paul McLoon speaking to us about if these walls could sing, which is available now on Disney Plus. George Gershwin died very tragically at the age of just 38. His impact on the music of the 20th century was quite simply unquantifiable. From the groundbreaking Rhapsody in Blue, written in 1924 when Gershwin was just 25 years of age, to the suite he titled An American in Paris four years later. The opera Porgy and Bess, featuring the song Summertime, I suppose one of the greatest compositions of all time, one of the many standards that remains instantly recognisable today. Someone to Watch Over Me is the title of a show happening at the National Concert Hall. In early February, performances from soprano Sandra Oman, who also wrote the show, baritone Simon Morgan, David Ray on piano, and actor Peter McCamley, who narrates and plays the part, I guess, of George Gershwin in the midst of all of this. With me in studio this evening, Sandra Oman, Simon Morgan, and David Ray. And let us start with the song that gives the show its title, Someone to Watch Over Me. There's a saying old says that love is blind Still we're often told Seek and ye shall find So I'm going to seek a certain lad I've had in mind 
Someone to watch over me, the title of the song and indeed the title of the show that we're talking about this evening, Someone to Watch Over Me, the life and music of George Gershwin at the National Concert Hall on Friday the 3rd of February. We heard David Ray on piano there and Sandra Oman, soprano, singing and who has written and put together uh, this entire show uh, with me in studio. What was uh, has, has Gershwin always been a big attraction for you, Sandra, in terms of both the music and telling his story? I love George Gershwin. I love probably more the great American songbook. So I love all of these great American composers, mm. if everyone from Cole Porter to um, Jerome Kern, Irving Berlin, George Gershwin, of course, uh, at the top of the list. But even lesser known composers like Nicholas Brodsky. Um, yes, I've always loved uh, that type of of music and song. And as you mentioned Nicholas Brodsky there, yes. um, um, Elmer Bernstein, we were speaking about him on the programme before Christmas and the big concert there of, of his music that was conducted by his his son. There is a there's a link here between all of these people in That's their right. in their origins. What George Gershwin? It's, it's, an, it's an immigrant origin. Yes, it is. Well, uh, with, with my God, with all of these great composers, but uh, with George Gershwin, it was uh, his grandfather was uh, Ukrainian born in Odessa. His father was actually born in St. Petersburg, so was his mother and then uh, his father followed his mother over to mm. the United States. But yes, so the, the, there's a Ukrainian uh, connection. Same with El, uh, Elmer Bernstein and Leonard Bernstein. They were all of Ukrainian. But Nicholas Brodsky, you're quite right, he had Ukrainian uh, ancestry as well. And he's he's a lesser known composer but he's absolutely wonderful. My husband uh, is a huge fan of his because people will know him best, I guess, for writing I'll Walk With God, which was, of course, in, in The Student Prince with Mario Lanza. It wasn't written by Sigmund Romberg. It was purely for the movie. Yeah. So, and also The Toast of New Orleans. For all the fans, as I said, that love Mario Lanza, they'll all be very familiar with Nicholas Brodsky. And, and given, given those type of backgrounds, and particularly in Gershwin's case, he moved 28 times That's during right. his childhood. Was, yeah. he, was he a musical magpie in all of those moves? Did he bring those influences with him? Absolutely, Sean, because... As you said, he moved to 28 different apartments in his childhood and they went from Harlem to the Lower East Side, um, Chinatown, everywhere. So you can hear all these influences. You can hear the Yiddish, obviously. He was mm. he was Jewish, so you can hear that klezmer sound in his music. You can hear, um, of course... The blues, uh, which he would have picked up in Harlem. Mm. He was a great fan of ragtime. And uh, you can also hear the influence of, uh, my dad was a big fan, I remember as a child, of Sousa. So you can hear the the, 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 the band, band, the marching yeah. band sound, yeah. exactly. So uh, all of these, it's like a melting pot, literally, mm. his compositions. You've got all of this going on. And I suppose that's part of the attraction, not just for you, Sandra, as yes. someone who comes from an opera background, but similarly, Simon Morgan, who's standing beside you. Um, I, I guess, Simon, I was talking earlier on about Abbey Road and how, you know, when in, in its early days, classical music, popular music, everything was kind of sitting side by side in the same studio and rubbing rubbing shoulders with each other. Gershwin really bridges that world between jazz and classical music. Yeah, he certainly does. He he gave a respect to us uh, that up till that stage. To, it, to it, jazz in particular, to, yeah. Yeah, to jazz in particular, uh, with his Rhapsody in Blue. But outside of that, he, he wasn't a conservatory trained pianist uh, when, when the parents bought a, a piano 
uh, for the family. He he learned himself. He mm. he learned as as Sandra's saying from so many different things. He was a magpie, and so he wasn't uh, trained in that kind of conservatory way where it was it, like he had no blinkers on, yeah. and he he took and he could hear these syncopated rhythms, the, the you know the flattened sevenths of the blue notes as Sandra talks yeah. about, and. Um, it was it was an amazing thing because he wasn't uh, limited by any kind of thing. And I think it was it was Gershwin who who asked Ravel to to teach him. Correct. And, and Ravel, <laughs> you know, do you know the Ravel response to that? Sandra? Yes, well, why I don't do. you give it? Why be a second-rate uh, Ravel when you can be a first-rate George Gershwin? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ravel said, "I'm not teaching it, you." Yet. It's amazing, and likewise, he had a great friendship with Schomburg, with, with so many of the great modern classical composers, and he did bridge that gap hugely. Um, yeah. And so, for you then, as a singer. And I guess this applies to Sandra too. For you as a singer, does he does he do something for the voice that allows you to use both that operatic and classical background and a more popular style of singing? It's it's quite interesting. For 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 me, I would say that um his his melodies actually are relatively simple. You don't have to have a classical voice to sing them. And mm. it's really his, his brother, uh, Ira, the, the lyrics, um, the lyrics, the thing, you know, and it, it, he really gave... Um, Ira's lyrics, they called him the jeweler. They had yeah. this absolute, um, the opposite of the way it's usually done, where Gershom would actually write the melody first and Ira, Ira would, would, then, would then put these lyrics on. But the lyrics are, are unbelievable. And uh, I find that the music just brings the lyrics alive un- unbelievably. So. Well, in fact, you know, why don't we listen to um, the, the duet that yourself and Sandra performed? One of the duets that you performed as part of the show. Because who would have thought that apostrophe S could be such yes. an incredible lyric but yeah. just listen to how Ira Gershwin and George Gershwin what do they do with apostrophe S this is what they do Life has just begun Jack has found his jewel Don't know what you've done But I'm all through How can words express your Sandra Oman and uh, Simon Morgan there accompanied by David Ray on piano with Swonderful, Paradise, Marvellous all of those <laughs> words and I just I only noticed it for the first time there we are thinking that it is today's generation who came up with Totes Amosh but yeah. okay, of course he, he takes the un after the end of Fash for Fashion Pash, Pash for Passion yeah. Emosh for totes and oats. Oh, yeah, yeah. So Ira Gershon, miles yeah. ahead of the posse there. The show, the show as it happens, uh, Sandra, it's it's not just music. There's a lot more going on. I mentioned actor yes. Peter Camley, uh, Peter McCamley. You might uh, explain his role and how that works. So basically, Peter is playing the part of George Gershwin. And I suppose the, the cohesive thread through the narrative is that He's looking back on his life and, as you said, the show is called Someone to Watch Over Me and he's reflecting on the fact that he's always had folks looking after Mm. him and helping him. I mean, predominantly Ira from when they were in school together because George was a very difficult child and he was always getting into trouble and Ira would, you know, kind of get him out of the scrapes with teachers and that. But then going on through life, um, Ira would cover up for him when when he had some of his, let's say, his uh, 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 relationships with the ladies. Uh, George would, or Ira would help George out with that. But then also into the afterlife even. So, so, 
when George died, Ira was the one who was the caretaker of their their catalogue. And then when Ira himself died, his wife, Leonor, she took on she that, took on, that yeah. mantle. And, and so, yes, yeah, so the show is Peter looking back in his life and saying, yes, I, Ira looked after me. Um, Morris, his father, looked after me. Uh, Rose, you know, all these people, Oscar Levant, mm. uh, you know, and then at times it was roles reversed. So it was George yeah. looking after people like Ethel Merriman. Uh, others. Now we're going. Yeah. To, we're, we're going. To, we are going to finish up for the song. But just before we go to that, you you will be back in the concert hall in in June with your that's your right. Jim, the three big of us Jim Joyce. James Joyce. So myself and uh, David Simon and the wonderful actress Mary McAvoy. Um, we're doing a Bloomsday celebration. Oh, right. Well, that that might so, be worth talking June about 16th. closer to the time. Absolutely. <laughs> you you are going to finish, Simon. What what song are you going to finish with then? It has to be uh, this one actually was uh, nominated for best song uh, post posthumously he died very early at, at, mm, 30 at 38 years, yeah. and uh, this is sung by Fred Astaire to Ginger Rogers you have to leave it with this they can't take that away from me the way you wear your hat sip your tea The memory of all that No, no They can't take that away from me The way your smile just beams Beautiful indeed They can't take that away from me Sung for us there by Simon Morgan Simon, Sandra Oman, Peter McCamley and David Ray all part of Someone to Watch Over Me The Life and Music of George Gershwin performed at the National Concert Hall on February the 3rd of this year Full details on nch.ie although I think you'll be looking for returns our tickets are certainly pretty much gone at this stage but there might be returns so keep an eye out for that and indeed nch.ie for details of Sandra's Bloomsday show a little bit later in the year and thanks to all three for being with us this evening You're listening to Friday Night's Arena Stockings, speed bump city Where the only thing that's pretty Is the thought of getting out There's a tower block Fans of gritty Sunday night crime drama will recognise that music. Happy Valley has returned after a seven-year hiatus, believe it or not. And not surprisingly, in this troubled town, Sergeant Catherine Cowood, as the song tells you, is still finding troubles. Or are they finding her? The Yorkshire-based series was a monster hit when it was launched in 2014. And season three kicked off on Sunday uh, on BBC One. Sarah Lancashire plays the aforementioned Sergeant Carwood was already a major star after her work on Coronation Street, Last Tango in Halifax, but the series also made a star of James Norton. He's back as chief shadow over Sergeant Cowood's life despite being behind bars. Both Sarah Lancashire and James Norton's careers have gone from strength to strength on the back of this series. This third, and we're told, final, mm. I hope they're lying to us, series reunites Sarah Lancashire and writer Sally Wainwright whose work relationship goes all the way back to Corrie, in fact, Coronation Street, and fostered not just this show, but Last Tango before it. The title, of course, A Cruel Joke, a barbed commentary on the deprivation faced 
by the people in this part of Yorkshire and while the town itself is fictional the hardship depicted on camera is anything but. Jen Gannon is here to bring us up to date on Happy Valley and cast her critical eye over season three you know and if they'd called it Trouble Town it would have been way too obvious. Yeah. They call it Happy Valley <laughs> and it kind of tells you the, the, the nuance the, the cleverness yeah. of of what Sally Wainwright, because she's, I suppose, the creator and writer in conjunction with Sarah Lancashire have, have created here. It's an extraordinary piece of work. Mm, it is. And like that that just sets it up. It sets the tone for this. It's the most sarcastic, I think, TV title in history. And you know what you're getting then straight away. Mm. And what you're getting is, you know, this exquisite misery in a way, I think uh, you could say about Happy Valley. Um, she's been all, through a lot, it has I to I mean, be said. she's a lot on her plate. Like for anybody, you know, that doesn't know, and I'll, I'll just do a quick summation mm. of what it is and what makes it so great as this very unconventional, you know, crime drama. Um, she plays, Sarah Lancashire plays Catherine Kaywood and she's suffering under the weight of her daughter Becky's death. Her daughter took her own life and she's raising Becky's son, Ryan, um, who's played by Reese Connor, who we've mm. seen grow up on the screen like yeah. before our very eyes like you know Kieran and Shipka as Sally in, in Mad Men it's it's great to see that And but Ryan the character is the product of, of Becky's rape by this psychotic criminal Tommy Lee Royce who as you said was played this terrifying turn by James Norton and it's all about that and it's about mm. you know obviously there is the crime you know procedural police, police procedural drama you, you threaded through it but the, the point of Happy Valley is it's really about family in, yeah. in a way and it's about for me I mean I always say it's like a Hardy novel with this like savage social commentary of like a cracker era Jimmy McGovern that's the yeah, way I would describe it, has, it. It, it, it all of those things are in there for sure let's take it th- there is a procedural a drama going on as you say of course kind of yeah. not, it's not quite in the background because of an, inevitably they will kind of link up mm. at some point along the way uh, I have a clip here from early on in fact where uh, Sarah Lancashire's character Kaywood is gently um, trounced <laughs> her superior officers, officers rather, as she briefs them on the scene of the body she has just found. Vincent Franklin uh, is here as DSU Andy Shepherd. So she spotted the body, and she spotted a few things on the body as she's been going along as well. Torso, skeleton, head, no hands, nothing below the waist. I think it's been uh, seven and a half, eight years. Oh really? Well, we'll let the Home Office pathologist decide that, shall we? <laughs> If you like, sir, as you wish. Heard you're retiring this year. Yep. Seven months, one week, three days. Teeth intact? Hmm? Oh, uh, yeah. Jenny's got um, metal plates on the right clavicle, very similar to me on, except mine's on the left. What are you doing with the metal plate, Catherine? Oh, it's a long story, sir, from a distant altercation. This is newer than mine. Oh, you've decided it's a he, have you? What's his favourite sandwich? <laughs> I shouldn't think we'll have too much trouble identifying him, her, whoever, if his teeth. You won't have any trouble at all, sir. It's Gary Kokoski. He fell off a third-floor balcony down at Upshaw House in Ireland about nine, ten years ago when he was off his head on MCAT. Shattered his collarbone. And I'd recognise those teeth anywhere. I nicked him once for a public order offence and he bit me. Went missing about 18 months later. That was seven and a half, eight years since. People used to say it upset someone who shouldn't have been buried in concrete underpants up at Scamenden, but happened they were wrong, eh? Mrs. Batins. You might find his legs are in that blue thing over there. I'll leave it with you. Twats. 
Oh, she's just brilliant, isn't she? Uh, Sarah Lancashire there, Sergeant Kaywood. And that's in Happy Valley final season. That's quite mm. on, uh, quite early on in the first episode, mm. uh, which went out last Sunday. You did, last it? Sunday, yeah. yeah. On, on, on BBC. Um, you've, how many have you seen at this point, Only Jen? two. Yeah. Uh, there's only six episodes, just to say as well. And Sally Wainwright has said it is the definitive full stop. They will not be going back to this. This is the end of uh, this character. And catch it while you can and enjoy yeah. it while you can as well. I say savour it because, you know, there's something about this that is unlike any other television in the way that it is written it's you know Mm. the mundanities of everyday life are as important as this grand you know criminal plot as well and I think that's what sets it apart from its contemporaries because you know you could happily watch Catherine and her sister you know Claire who's played brilliantly by Siobhan uh, Finnan she was this ex-heroine addict and you could just watch them chatting over a packet of digestives and a brew and a smoke you could watch that as much as you could watch, you know, the goings on of the drama itself. Yeah. It's as engaging. It is as entertaining. And I think that just becomes clear that, you know, Sally Wainwright has those years of experience on Coronation Street and she understands how to write really effective, real, natural dialogue, yeah. the phrasing, the slang, you know, the inarticulacies that you have in everyday life. And it has this unmistakable brand of humour. You know, this, it's all about so many cracks in it, like in the, the past two episodes about farting during yoga classes, menopausal <laughs> madness, Greta Thunberg and you know it has they have this kind of partnership the, the two sisters and it's almost like Grey Gardens mm. but it's almost like Victoria yeah. Wood it's like a Victoria yeah. Wood sketch but, at the same time and and that's she, it. it's like what they did with the, the teeth comment there yeah. in, in the middle of that clip where he says are the teeth still intact as if it's t- he's talking about her it's just that cle- yeah. it's really clever, clever stuff that goes on and and as you say those scenes between Sarah Lancashire and Siobhan Finnan and extraordinary but there are scenes around the dinner table scenes in the family home mm. it's quite an extended family that, that's involved here and there is our own yeah. Charlie Murphy is, is in there. In the Charlie Murphy is, is great in it. She is uh, playing. She is a Anne Gallagher. We've met mm. her in season two, where Catherine actually saves her life and and comes back and wants to emulate Catherine by becoming a police yeah. officer. And the, their their even relationship is almost like a, a mother daughter uh, kind of thing as well. And you know the family is is eaten up with grief. And uh, her oldest son, Catherine's oldest son, Daniel. You know he we've seen him Sean Ryan. Uh, her grandson in this very painful way and you see her trying to act as this peacemaker and this, but also this guardian because she's worried as you see the seasons develop that Ryan is, you know, he's changing, he's turning yeah. into a young man and she's constantly worrying has What's he inherited he some of his father's yeah. traits and it's I all am. this idea about the sins of the father or can you outrun your fate or, you know, it's very fatalistic mm. ruminations on, on those kind of things which I think is so interesting and yeah, this season we see him kind of wanting, last season we saw him acting out in school and he wanted to connect with his dad and he was saying can you ever really forgive somebody and that was the kind of hurt her and then you can see in this season you know he is going to see his father yeah, apparently the, behind her back Yeah the dad here is one Tommy Lee Rice played by James Norton mm. I mean this is an ex- In his Charles Manson hair era now <laughs> <laughs> it's longer now yeah. and yeah he's terrifying he's quietly terrifying I have to say in this role and it, it's very much that thing where um, they don't shy away from making the fact that he is a good looking chap mm. as a, like a central kind of element of the plot in the first two seasons and that's why her daughter Becky you know fell under his spell and it's very much about that kind of thing where you know the the it's always the person that you least suspect yeah. that can become your worst nightmare and your worst enemy. Well, let's listen to him in action here. Uh, he's been questioned in jail. Uh, James Norton as Tommy Lee Rice being questioned in jail by DC Stead played by Jason Merrills. 
Do you know a lad called Nazam Miraf? He's on the same floor as me at Sheffield. How would you respond, Tommy, if I told you that Naz, Nazam, has told us that you told him that you were involved in the murder of that lad they found buried in concrete in that dam up Rippenden? <laughs> Why would I be telling him out? What would your reaction be, Tommy, if I told you that he told us certain things that were done to this lad, to this Gary, and that he says you told him? and they were never made known to the public. I'd say happen at Sim, you need to be chatting to not me. Except he was inside when Gary disappeared. Well, then he's mixing me up with somebody else then. Neither that or he's making stuff up. Doing a bit of grassing, get himself a text and a few privileges, eh? He, he is so kind of insidious in the way that he gets inside inside your head yeah. in, the, in that particular scene. And there's a scene later on where he makes a statement, somebody else reads it, and you're watching him as the, the statement's mm. been read. He is he is evil personified. He manages to do that on screen. Oh, he definitely does. And the thing about it is, you know, he is constantly on Catherine's mind. He is her, you know, true nemesis. Mm. And she's so raw about him. She's like this wronged mother and she's just alive with this fury about, you know, the injustice of living this life through grief. And, you know, we've seen her in, in season one and season two just pushing through every day. And I think... Where, what we're getting here, even though it is the cliche of her retiring and, you know, that whole thing of a police officer tantalisingly close to retirement, you know, one last case to clear, what could possibly go wrong? Yeah, but everything. even that element <laughs> is, is is ratcheted up for, you know, in a believable way for Happy Valley because there has been that seven year break. She is getting older, so it is convincing. It's, it's, and it's believable. It's going to end up, it has to end up with some kind of showdown between yeah, yeah, the two yeah, of them abso- absolutely, again. Yeah. <laughs> and to what extent, you know, she is front and centre, Sarah, like mm. Share in in the whole thing. To what extent is does it depend on her, or is it much broader than that? I mean, I think the the writing is, as I said, it, it is just transcendent. I I think you know, there's a lot of there's a common term of kitchen sink drama that's often used to describe the show, and I think that's really reductive because it's about the interior the interiority of working class lives are important, and it does look at that, and it looks at you know how this society, a forgotten town almost, is broken by drugs and broken by these crooked businessmen who've infiltrated the there's touches of the Grenfell terror tragedy when they're talking mm. about these apartment blocks that have been thrown up and you know there's a woman that falls out her window that's completely unsafe and you know the working class areas that people forget about and normal life is really the nuts and bolts of this procedural drama and there's a whole subplot running in and around prescription drugs yeah, and a, a, a dodgy pharmacist yeah but i do think you know aside from the writing you have to have someone who can imbue this great character and Sarah Lancashire she's nothing short of, of a revelation in this like she can just convey so much sadness and trauma and disappointment with just a look behind her eyes and you can see it in the despair and tightness of, of her mouth yeah. And but she's not a superhero and that's a really important thing I think that Catherine has her shortcomings she's very complex and that's what makes it so compelling because you're looking at someone recognising their failures and the chaos and complexity of those emotions and it feels very real when, when she portrays it 
and I think you know that anxiety radiates from the screen and yeah. it's perfect talk back telly like I find myself you know just shouting <laughs> at characters all the time and you're screaming at them for yeah. doing something wrong and, and that's ideal in that's a, what in you a good want way. so you, you have no doubt that you're going to be watching all six episodes oh it, definitely look it's grim up north but I would not have it any other way that's what I want from Happy Valley alright Happy Valley season 3 continues on BBC One on Sunday nights and my thanks to Jen Gannon for that and that is our lot for this Friday evening Amadine Paso Devine and Leah Murphy Research. Kieran Dunn was on sound this evening. Michelle Gibson was the broadcast coordinator and tonight's programme was produced by Sinead Egan. Talk to you on Sunday on RTE Lyric FM. We'll be there from 1 to 4 as usual and we'll be back with you here on RTE Radio 1 on Monday evening. And uh, Ray, Ray Cuddy, I think, is still in for John Creedon. He'll be with you after the news.